You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. So today means we are now four weeks into the book of 1 Timothy. And one of the themes of this book that we've seen so far is that sound doctrine is very important. In fact, every sermon up to this point has had something to do with sound doctrine. Pastor Joe's first sermon was on the connection between nature and sound doctrine. And then in the second sermon, I talked about how sound doctrine is the purpose of elders. And then last week, Pastor David said that the foundation to sound doctrine is the infinite happiness of God. A lot has been said about sound doctrine. You've already heard it this morning. And we're going to keep talking about sound doctrine. You will keep hearing about sound doctrine. But today's passage is extra, extra important when it comes to sound doctrine, because in verse 15, we find the clearest, most concise description of sound doctrine in the entire Bible. And I mean what I just said. I mean it. The Apostle Paul is so straightforward and simple here. He, he is intending to give us, give us something here he, he wants us to hold on to. He, he is telling us something here that he wants us to never forget. This is super, super important. Here it is. Verse 15. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That is the main message of this passage. That's the main message of the sermon It's also the main message of this church. This is the reason why any of us are here in this moment. It's because Jesus came to save sinners. And when it comes to the the sermon outline, super simple. It's just one sentence. One sentence that we're going to look at in three parts. Here it is. Part one, Jesus saves sinners. Part two, even the worst of sinners, and then part three, and God gets all the glory. Jesus saves sinners, even the worst of sinners, and then God gets all the glory. We're going to look at each of those, but let's pray first and ask for God's help again. Father, in this moment, with your word open before us, your word that we've just heard, we acknowledge that right now we are gathered around the greatest news in the universe. And so wherever our minds are darkened, give light. Wherever our hearts are cold, send fire. Show us your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So part one is Jesus saves sinners. Jesus saves sinners. Now it's important to keep in mind that Paul has been talking about false teaching, okay? The main thing that he's been discussing in the first 11 verses um, has been all about false teaching. And so here in verse 12, when Paul starts to reflect on his own ministry, we have to remember is in this context, this false teaching context. And so what Paul does is he distinguishes himself from these false teachers by giving us the origin story of his apostleship. He's going to land everything he's saying in verse 15, verse 15, I think, is the, is the heart of the passage. It's the crescendo of sound doctrine. But verses 12 and 14, 12, 13, and 14, they, they remind us who the man is who is saying verse 15. 
And so we, we need to look at it. We need to pay attention to it. Verses 12, 13, and 14 are meant to set up verse 15. And so there are a few points I want to mention, and I'm going to do this quickly, okay? The first thing we see is that Paul exists because of Jesus. In verse 12, Paul gives thanks to Jesus for the strength that Jesus has given him to fulfill the ministry of Jesus that Jesus has appointed him to. That's what Paul is saying there in verse 12. So contrary to the false teachers, there is no self-selection happening with the apostle Paul. Paul is Paul, and Paul does what he does because of Jesus. Paul is in the ministry of Jesus, appointed there by Jesus, filled with the strength of Jesus, and therefore he gives thanks to Jesus. Paul exists because of Jesus. The second thing we see is that Paul is not like the false teachers. Jesus has orchestrated every step of who Paul is, although, verse 13, Paul used to be a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. In other words, Paul's saying, hey, I, I used to be a bad guy. Paul used to be a bad guy. He used to be an enemy of the gospel. And this is interesting because Paul, who used to be an enemy of the gospel, has been talking about false teachers who are current enemies of the gospel. And so how does this work? This is we should wonder, wasn't Paul, wasn't Paul just like these false teachers that he's talking about here in chapter 1? And Paul would say, no. In verse 13, Paul says that he received mercy because he acted ignorantly in unbelief. And that statement is meant to be a jab at the false teachers. Paul is implying that when he was an opponent to the gospel, he was an opponent in ignorance, whereas the false teachers are fully aware of what they're doing. See, back in the day, Paul, he didn't know the gospel. He didn't understand the gospel. Paul was sincerely oblivious. But these false teachers, on the other hand, they've heard the gospel. They know the truth. These false teachers are choosing. They are deciding to be enemies of the gospel. And so there's a subtle contrast happening here in these verses. There's a subtle, a subtle contrast between Paul and these false teachers. Paul is saying, hey, I'm not like these false teachers. And that's because Paul had been radically transformed by the gospel. That's verse 14. Verse 14 makes all the difference. Paul says, the grace of our Lord, he's talking about Jesus here, the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. This is the mercy that Paul had received. The grace of Jesus abounded for him. The grace of Jesus overflowed for him with the faith and love that are in Jesus. And there's a question here about what exactly does Paul mean? Is Paul talking about his own faith and love that are in Jesus? Or is he talking about Jesus's faithfulness and love for him? And again, this is where the false teaching context is helpful because we, we see in the context of these false teachers, Paul is talking about his own love and faith. That's something that the false teachers did not have, but it's something that Paul did have because Jesus accomplished it in Paul by his grace. Paul used to be a blasphemer. He used to be a persecutor of the church, but now because of the overflowing grace of Jesus, Paul has faith and love in Jesus. Paul is saying, I am a changed man. 
the Apostle Paul himself has been radically transformed by this gospel that he preaches. That's what he's saying here in verses 12 to 14. And all of this matters for how we hear verse 15. Because in verse 15, Paul is not just regurgitating truth, okay? He's not just repeating something that he's heard before, even if he believed it. No, instead, Paul is about to say something in verse 15 that he himself has experienced firsthand. That's, that's why he does this, there's this, this, this drum roll thing that he does here in verse 15. That's what that is. He says, this saying, you know, is trustworthy. And you didn't hear the drum roll. I was doing a drum roll. The, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. In other words, Paul's saying, what I'm about to say is completely true, and you should embrace it wholeheartedly. This is a no questions asked, absolute kind of statement. What I'm about to say, this is the sort of statement upon which you can build your entire life. Really, this changes everything. Seriously, I mean it. I mean it. This saying is trustworthy. It is worthy of all, deserving of all acceptance. And here it is. This is what he says, verse 15. Jesus Christ came to save sinners of whom I am foremost. It's no secret, if you guys have been around our church, City's Church for a while, it's no secret that we value sound doctrine. We, we, we planted this church from a church that values sound doctrine. We are led by pastors who value sound doctrine. And even back in, in, in the day when in, you know, we were having the earliest dreams about this church, those dreams had to do with sound doctrine. We love sound doctrine at Cities Church. And uh, this, has only been, this has only been five years ago, 2014. It feels like it was a lot longer than that. But back in 2014, when this whole thing was just a, it was literally, and this is kind of cliche, it was a, a group of people in a living room. You know, it was kind of, that's true. There was a handful of families in a living room, and, and we were meeting together to, to talk about, man, what, what does God want us to plant in this church? We felt like God was calling us, leading us to plant a church. We didn't want to rush anything. And so one of the key things we discussed now five years ago, one of the, the, the top of the list when it, came to, when it came to things that we talked about in those early days was how do we faithfully live out our sound doctrine? That was the question. We asked it a few different ways. That was the main question. How, how do we live out this vision of God that we all embrace? We had this doctrine of God in his glory and his sovereign grace. And the question was, man, what does that look like in everyday life? What does it mean that God is sovereign in his grace for the butcher, the baker, and the candlestick maker? Like, what does it mean for people who are suffering? What does it mean for those who are stuck or distracted or far from God? What does our theology mean for the people of these twin cities? That was the question that we asked, and we knew before we could really answer that question, we, we had to somehow take our theology and distill it down into something we could hold on to. Like we, we, we had this amazing document in our affirmation of faith, and it articulates the most glorious truths imaginable. You, you could read this statement of faith as like a daily devotional. It's that good, Okay. We had this amazing document, but we wonder, what's the main thing that's being said here? Like, what is the main thing that we believe? If we could put our whole vision of God into one little sentence, what would it be? We asked that question, and we gave it a shot. 
And this is what we said. Jesus saves sinners. That's it. If you want to know what we believe, Jesus saves sinners. And we mean every word of that, just like the Apostle Paul does. We believe Jesus saves sinners, and that's Jesus as in not man. We cannot save ourselves, and nobody like us can save us either unless it's someone who is fully like us but also fully God, which is who Jesus is. Jesus is God the Son, begotten from the Father before all ages. God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. Through him all things were made. And for us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven and was made incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made human. That is the Jesus who saves us. And it saves as in not merely rehabilitates, okay? Jesus saves us comprehensively and eternally and irrevocably. Jesus doesn't just alter our circumstances. He redirects the destiny of our souls. And they are the souls of sinners, not Sinners as in not semi-good people who need a little pick-me-up. No. We are sinners who have rebelled against a holy God, and therefore we justly deserve his holy wrath. Jesus saves sinners. That's what we believe. And we believe that first because the Bible says it, but we believe it also because we have experienced it. Like, I want you to know, church, that, that your pastors have been saved by Jesus. Jesus saved me. Okay. Jesus saved me. And it had to be Jesus. Believe me. It had to be Jesus. That's what I love about the last thing here that Paul says in verse 15. Paul says, Christ Came into, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And then he goes, that last line there, of whom I am the foremost. So Paul's saying, Jesus came to save sinners. And believe me, I know because I was the worst sinner there ever was. This is the second part. Even the worst of sinners. Jesus came to save sinners, part two, even the worst of sinners. And I, I think Paul means what he says here, okay? This is not performative humility. I, I think that Paul really considered himself to be the foremost of sinners. He believed he was the worst. And we see a little bit of his story here. We see it a few times in the book of Acts. We see it in Galatians 1. We see it in Philippians 3. Paul was very open about his past. He persecuted Christians. He sanctioned their murders. He, he opposed the gospel every way he could. He tells us that. Paul was the kind of sinner that other sinners are supposed to look at and say, at least I'm not that bad. Seriously, I, that's what Paul is saying here. 
I've heard it said before, maybe you guys have heard this too. I've heard it said before that, that you know, we should all be like Paul here and we should all consider ourselves the foremost of sinners. It's been said that if we were really in tune with our hearts, then we would, like Paul, believe ourselves to be the worst people we know. I don't think that's right. Okay. I believe that Paul wants you to know that he is a worse sinner than you are. He wants you to know that. He is a worse sinner than you. And just to be clear, of course, we, we're still sinners. Like We are all sinful enough to deserve the wrath of God. But the point that Paul is making by calling himself the foremost of sinners is that if God can save him, then God can save anybody. That's what verse 16 says. Look at that. Verse 16. But I received mercy for this reason. Okay, this is the purpose. The purpose for why Paul received mercy as the worst of sinners is in order that Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. In other words, by Jesus saving Paul, it means that Jesus has saved more unlikely sinners than yourself. If Jesus can be patient with Paul, Jesus can be patient with anybody. And that word patience is important. Okay? It is full of meaning here. I think a lot of times when we think about the word patience, we imagine there to be like this thermometer and like it's just like the temp's just rising. Anybody else? Is that just me? Do anybody else think that when you think about patience? Parents, help me out here. Yes, okay. But really, think about this. What, this, is, this think about this. In what context do we most often use the word patience? Is it a warning? I'm really trying to be patient. My patience is running thin. I, 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 think, I think about patience every Sunday during confession, okay? That's when I think about patience the most, okay? If we were to, I think, survey parents, if we were to survey our kids on what the word patience means, I think they would probably say, it's that thing that mom and dad mentioned right before they lose it, you know, right before they, it's like, yeah, I hear that word all the time. It's like right when, you know, dad's face is getting red. It, I, I, th I think we tend to imagine patience from a negative perspective. Like we think about patience as this thing that we lack. Patience is this thing that we need more of. And, and we, we only really think about it when, when we know it's running low. That's how patience goes for us. That's not how patience works for Jesus. Oh, man, this is so good. I, the all patience of Jesus is power. The patience of Jesus is power. The all patience of Jesus is his long-suffering kindness. It's his enduring mercy that doesn't look at his watch or tap his foot or put up with stuff. Instead, the patience of Jesus, it is his enduring mercy that overcomes every obstacle. The perfect patience of Jesus for Paul overcame everything that stood between Jesus and Paul. And that was meant to be an example for you, for us. That was meant to be an example for us, that if Jesus can overcome everything that stood in the way between Jesus and Paul, then Jesus can overcome everything that stands in the way between Jesus and you. 
which means you have to stop with the excuse that you're too far from God for his grace to reach you. You got to stop it because you're not. I really want you to hear this part, okay? Some of you shy away from the grace of God because your shame tells you you're unsavable. And there are a lot more of us, I think, who we think maybe we're just barely savable. Like you think God is able to squeeze you in, but you don't, you don't, you know, you're not gonna do much, but you got in. We tend to put limits on God's grace in our lives based upon the way we perceive our own brokenness. You guys get that? Even in the Christian life. Think about your Christian life. We tend to, we tend, when we think about our lives, we tend to put limits on God's grace in our lives based upon how we perceive our own brokenness. And the Apostle Paul would say, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Paul would say, my entire life, Paul says, my entire story is meant to tell you that wherever you're from and whoever you are and whatever you've done, Jesus can save you and Jesus can use you. And like, we, we, we need to believe that in this, right now, like in this church, we need to believe that, okay? So everyone right now, like say to your neighbor, we're going to do this, say to your neighbor, Jesus can save you. He's able. Look, this is, I know we're going to try this. He, I mean it. Look, even the worst of sinners. Jesus saves sinners, even the worst. We have to believe that. It's true for every, it is true for every single person in this room. Jesus is able to save you. Jesus is able to use you because Jesus saves sinners, even the worst of sinners. And here's the last point. Okay, here's, here's the third point. Okay, Jesus saves sinners, part one. Part two, even the worst of sinners, part three. And God gets all the glory. We see this in verse 17. He, Paul starts his passage in verse 12 by thanking Jesus as he's reflecting on his own story and, and Jesus' mercy to him. Then he moves in, in verse 15. He declares the central truth of the gospel and his experience of that truth. And then here in verse 17, he just takes off with doxology. He, he says, to the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. In, in one sense now, if we, we read this and we think, I mean, that's just Paul doing his thing, you know. We, if we've read the New Testament before, we know the Apostle Paul from time to time. He, he, he just explodes in the praise like this. This is what Paul does. It's almost like the content that Paul's been writing about overcomes him, and he just starts to worship. I think, I think that's right. I think that's what's happening here. Paul is so compelled. He's so moved by the mercy of Jesus in his own life that he just has to say, to God be the glory. Jesus saves sinners, even the worst of sinners. I know I am the foremost, and so to God be all the glory. That's true. That's what Paul is doing here. But he's also saying more than that. There's some special language that Paul uses here in verse 17, and I think that there are two truths at work. We're going to mention these in closing, okay? The first is that God gets the credit, not Paul. And this is the plainest thing I think we can see in the whole passage. 
um, especially, you know, there in verse 17. We don't even have to read verse 17 to get the picture here that Paul's salvation is not his own doing, okay? Look at who Paul used to be, uh, then look at who Paul has become. Jesus is the one who made all the difference. This is easy, okay? God getting the credit instead of Paul is the logical conclusion anybody would make when you look at Paul's life, okay? The thing is, that's not just true for Paul, but that's the way that God has designed salvation overall. God getting credit for Paul's salvation goes for Paul, and it goes for every single Christian there has ever been. Our salvation, our receiving the mercy of Jesus, says more about Jesus than it does us. In fact, the whole thing has been engineered by God so that we cannot boast in ourselves. And Paul says this in other places throughout the New Testament. I think the clearest place is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. Ephesians 2 changed my life, okay? It was these verses, 8 and 9. Look at verse 8. I'll just read it. Ephesians 2, verse 8. Paul says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. All right, let's track with what he's saying here, okay? For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. That's plain. Okay, we get it, Paul. We, we get it that we didn't do this salvation. God did, did, did this salvation. God is the one who saved us. We hear you. We get this. But then Paul says it again. He says, now look, it is the gift of God. It is not a result of works so that no one may boast, which means, look, if there is something in your Christian life that you pat yourself on the back for, you've got it wrong. Now, means are a real thing. Decisions are a real thing. Wisdom is a real thing, okay? But at the end of the day, the decisive cause for our salvation is not, not us. It's God. And because the decisive cause of our salvation is not us but God, God then gets all the praise. God the Father chose you before salvation, before the foundations of the world. God the Son accomplished your salvation when he died on the cross and rose from the dead. God the Spirit applies your salvation as he opens our eyes to believe and indwells our lives with his Holy Spirit. It is God from start to finish. God from start to finish. And so to God be all the glory. And that's what brings us here to this last point, okay? The last point here. God gets all the glory and in particular, it's God the Father is worshipped because of what God the Son has done. Notice that in verses 12 to 16, Paul is talking exclusively about Jesus here. There's just five verses here. Jesus is mentioned by name, title, or pronoun ten times. This passage is overwhelmingly Jesus-centered. 
Paul is deliberate in focusing on Jesus. He is being intentional when he says he gives thanks to Jesus and that Jesus has strengthened him and that Jesus has appointed him to Jesus' ministry. Paul means to say Jesus. He means it when he says that Jesus came to save sinners and that in saving him, Jesus was displaying Jesus' patience, which is meant to be an example for everyone who will believe in Jesus for eternal life. All that has happened at ground zero of Paul's life is because of Jesus. Jesus has been the one involved, and Paul knows it's Jesus, the real person. Paul is talking here about the real person, Jesus, who back in the day, out of nowhere, as Paul was traveling down the road to Damascus, suddenly a bright light flashed, and it knocked Paul to the ground, and a voice said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul said, Lord, who are you? And the voice said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. That is the Jesus Paul is talking about here in 1 Timothy 1. Paul has met Jesus. Paul has encountered this real person, Jesus, who came to save sinners, even the worst of sinners. And so we can't just skim over these 10 mentions of Jesus in verses 12 to 16. Paul means what he says, which makes verse 17 stand out. Because in verse 17, Paul stops talking about Jesus, and he unmistakably starts talking about God the Father. He says, to the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God. That, that is an amazing combination of Old Testament imagery. Paul, Paul is talking here about God the Father, God who is sovereign over all, God who is indestructible in his power, God who can't be seen, not even by Moses. Paul is, is here talking about the God of Israel who said in Deuteronomy 6, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. Paul prayed that prayer. He prayed those words. He believed those words. He knew there was only one God. He knew that one God is above all and over all. He knew that one God is categorically different from all of his creatures. That God, that God is utterly transcendent. And so to that God be glory. To that God be glory. But why? Why? We see here in the passage, the God who is utterly transcendent gets glory because he is also the God who came near in the person of his son. We worship the God who is out there because he is also the God who came here. We worship the God who can't be seen because he sent his son who can be seen and who came here for our worship. The Son was sent for our worship. Jesus says that in John 4. Jesus says that the Father is seeking worshipers who will worship him in spirit and truth. Peter says in 1 Peter 3.18 that Jesus suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. All that Jesus has done for us in his coming and living and dying and coming back to life is so that we might live and say what Paul does here in verse 17. 
to the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. God gets all the glory. Jesus saves sinners, even the worst of sinners, and God gets all the glory. And so now as we come to this table, that's what we're saying. As we take the bread and cup like Paul, we are giving thanks to Jesus. As we take the bread and cup, we know we, we are here only because of Jesus. And so we give him thanks. And we are also saying because of Jesus, through Jesus, in Jesus, to the King of Ages, to the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit, be all the glory. That's what this table is about. We're going to serve the bread first. It's gluten-free. You can just hold on to it. I'll come back up, and we will eat it all together. His body is the true bread. Let us serve you. 